here we go. Yeah, so basically, as I was saying, I've been uh, preparing for my wake festival. And one of the things that I'm doing at that festival in Ireland is um, a day at the Crawford's Burn-In, which is this beautiful hotel um, that melts into this forest park. And it's somewhere where C.S. Lewis often would hang out and he'd, he'd meet friends there. He had a belated honeymoon with joy there. And um, the forest itself is reputed to kind of, you know, be one of the influences um, uh, in the landscape of Narnia itself. So we're going to be going there for a day, hanging out, going for walks. And I wanted to do a talk uh, on C.S. Lewis because he is an interesting figure. Uh, he's someone who grew up uh, in Belfast, just around the corner from where I lived. Uh, in fact, one of my friends lived right next door to Little Lee, which is his childhood home. And um, I've always kind of like admired his intellect, uh, his ability to write in various genres, um, his enjoyment of debate. He was actually the president of the Socratic Society in Oxford for many years. I think he might have actually founded the society. Uh, you know, he loved nothing more than debating with the intellectuals of the day about all manner of things. But um, obviously one of his main interests was religion. Uh, you know, philosophy for him was never a subject. Uh, he once actually talked about philosophy as a subject and one of his friends said, for, for the original philosophers, it wasn't a subject, it was a, it was a matter of life and death. Um, and, you know, C.S. Lewis was like, yeah, it is. You know, the, this is not some sort of academic thing. Um, you know, issues of life and meaning and philosophy and theology um, are issues about what it means to be human. So... Uh, he's an interesting character. However, of course, um, <clears throat> I'm kind of critical of some of his work. Uh, his apologetics, uh, you know, are sometimes, you know, I find kind of problematic in various ways. So some people have said to me, why is this, you know, why have you become interested in Lewis again recently? Um, but it's, it's partly because I think there is a way to radicalize him, that actually he has some incredible insights uh, that he puts incredibly beautifully. And um, I was thinking about, you know, what to say on this uh, video. And I was reminded of this little story um, about uh, this Irish guy, Seamus, who is in Belfast. And he's on this bus. And this tourist gets on the bus and says to Seamus, listen, um, I'm looking for Shaftesbury Square. Uh, could you tell me, you know, when to get off the bus? And Seamus says, oh, yeah, he says, no problems, no problems. He says, just keep an eye on me and see whenever I get off. And Tour says, yes. He says, okay, yeah, all you have to do is get off the stop before me. Right? And that's how I feel about C.S. Lewis, is uh, I follow his work in various ways. And then once I get to the end of it, I'm like, crap, I should have just got off the stop before he did. And one of the examples of this is in his book, Surprised by Joy, which um, I actually have to confess I just read yesterday. Um, I'm not one for autobiographies, uh, and this is kind of his most autobiographical work. But I read it. Um, it's very beautifully written, and it has some beautiful insights uh, into the area of joy. And I just want to kind of chat about those. So basically, C.S. Lewis differentiates joy from happiness and pleasure. 
right? So he uses joy in a technical sense. And basically, pleasure is something you, I guess, receive if you kind of, you go for a nice walk, you have a drink with friends. Pleasure is something that, that you, you get from some concrete activity. Uh, happiness, uh, you know, I don't know exactly how Lewis would def- dis- define it, um, but I'm guessing he would be kind of Aristotelian or he would be the idea that happiness is a life well lived, you know, living the good life. But for him, joy is more like longing than pleasure or happiness. Um, it, is, it is a orientation towards something that you don't have. Because longing, of course, is what you feel for something that you don't have. You long, you yearn for home. It means you're not at home. But it's different from our usual sense and understanding of longing in the sense that longing is often a painful thing. We yearn for that which we feel would give us pleasure, that we feel would make us happy. And so yearning and longing can actually be deeply painful experiences for us. For Lewis, joy is a type of longing that is pleasurable. It's a type of longing for another world, another place, another thing that doesn't bring us suffering, but actually enlivens us, makes us feel lighter, makes us experience the world with more depth and density, with more intensity than ever. So joy is distinguished from happiness and from pleasure and even from longing. Um, uh, so it's, it's happiness and pleasure in the sense of it's, it's something that you don't have, but it's similar to longing in that sense, but it's different from longing because it's a pleasurable yearning, a pleasurable longing. Like maybe, I don't know, you know wanting to go on a holiday and you're thinking about the holiday and just thinking about the holiday is actually making the rest of your life better. Now, of course, you can um, think about a holiday and just be really depressed and kind of go, I really want it to arrive. I really want it to arrive. Um, but joy would, I suppose, in this analogy be, you know, that experience of booking something and, and it, just, it just like lightens up everything else. It makes work easier. It makes your relationships easier because you're not so stressed um, and, and you're thinking about it. In fact, the holiday rarely lives up to, to the excitement of, of, of the waiting for it, you know. Now, C.S. Lewis says in Surprised by Joy that one of the things he learned from the idealists, because Lewis was an idealist for a, a time, um, for a long time, actually. Uh, he even said he followed Berkeley and Berkeley's philosophy. Um, he said he learned that heaven, it is better that heaven should exist than that we should ever get there. Right. So he, he said this is something that he learned from idealism and that he believes strongly to this day. It is better that heaven exists than that any of us should ever get there. And this is a, a you know, typical, uh, beautiful phrase by Lewis. Uh, and in one way to unpack it is to say that, you know, for Lewis, heaven is something that defies the imagination and the intellect, right? Uh, in, in the Bible, there's this verse that says, you know, no eye is seen, no ear is heard, no mind is conceived, the glory to come, you know, heaven. Heaven is beyond the ability to conceptualize and the mind to see or to hear. It, it, it defies the imagination. It, our, our reason 
comes to a stuttering halt before it. And so for Lewis, all the imaginary um, images of heaven that he would conjure up were nothing but aromas of something that is beyond the imagination. So heaven is the name for a place that defies all understanding. So even the word place is problematic because place defines somewhere in space and in time. But for Lewis, spatial and temporal categories wouldn't uh, be appropriate to heaven either. So it's not like you go up to, you know, you travel far enough into space and you'll find heaven. Um, So heaven defies all of our ability to grasp. But the idea that it exists for Lewis is what's most important, that what we see and feel and touch is not all there is, that the universe contains something uncontainable, that our world is broken apart by some uh, unimaginable vision, uh, a vision that, that without vision of another world, right? And that for Lewis is incredibly important. Um, And joy then is, in a sense, the moments in which we dimly perceive that this is not all there is, that other worlds are possible, that these are the shadow lands. Um, Now, for Lewis in the last chapter of Surprised by Joy, he defines Christianity um, as the path. He says, joy... Are like, are like signposts. Our experiences of joy are these moments that point us beyond ourselves, beyond this world of materiality. And we can never grasp those moments. You might get it when you're having a fireside conversation. You might get it when you have a, a conversation with someone on a plane, or you read some piece of poetry, or you look at a sunset, and there's just this moment of transcendence. But as soon as you try to reflect on that, um, you lose it. Uh, C.S. Lewis says what you end up with is the sediment of the joy, but not the joy itself. So you can do that. You can reflect on it, but you can't bring it back necessarily by reflecting on what happened. In fact, the very act of reflection on what happened often makes it dissipate all the more. Actually, that's the difference between you know, psychoanalysis and psychology. You know, psychology um, is a process of reflecting on human subjectivity where psychoanalysis and phenomenology is an an attempt to kind of observe what's actually going on subjectively from the inside, from within. But anyway, so so for C.S. Lewis, joy happens in the strangest of moments, in the most inane moments. The first time he experienced joy was here in Belfast when I think it was his brother brought in and created a little miniature garden and was playing with that. And if, if, if I can remember this correctly, you know, just weirdly that moment of looking at that little garden opened up this little moment, this little surprise by joy, this little, there is something other than this. And then for him, say his conversion, he, he says that Christianity is then getting on the path. Now, I like this analogy because Christianity for him then isn't the destination. It's not getting to the place that joy is pointing. It's kind of like, in this analogy, more consistently walking it, living your life 
oriented towards something that is other than this world. Uh, but not in a painful way, like, oh, this is rubbish. I hate the walk. I can't wait to get to the destination. It's, it's actually enjoying the not being there, enjoying the waiting for the holiday rather than the holiday itself. Um, now, this, this is where I want to get off the bus. Right? This is the very point where I'm like right with Lewis. I think he beautifully articulates what joy is. This fits very neatly to what I talked about in other Facebook Lives. What I love about these, by the way, is that they're all beginning to interconnect. So if you're listening to this and you like it, go back and listen to my video on want and need or my video on the different, three different types of spirituality. And uh, you know, you'll see these themes are in... Uh, are, are things that I've explored before. This longing for something which we don't have, this openness to um, unknowing, doubt, complexity, the enjoyment of not having certainty and satisfaction. Um, so Lewis has all of that. But then what he has at the last stop is this idea that, yes, but, but it is, there is this ultimate utopia, this ultimate stopping point. Um, now, he, he calls it a beginning, not an end. So heaven for him is the beginning of something else that lasts for all eternity. But it is still the idea that, that the path ultimately, um, not in this life, but in the next, we get to this end location. And that's just where I want to cut the head off this and keep everything else and say, well, yes, if idealism taught C.S. Lewis that it is better for heaven to exist than for any of us to ever get there, then the lesson of deconstruction and the lesson of a philosopher like John Caputo would be, it's better that heaven insists than that any of us should ever get there. Uh, C.S. or John Caputo uh, has a beautiful book called The Insistence of God. So instead of talking about the existence, existence of God, he talks about the insistence of God. Because even the word exist um, has a spatial and temporal dimension. When you say that something exists, you're saying that it exists in space and time, uh, in some location, in some sort of way. And uh, you know, C.S. Lewis would be the first to admit that. Uh, he's talked about that elsewhere, where, you know, even in science, the most precise type of language, we, we fall into metaphor, uh, you know, when we're talking about quantum particles, et cetera, et cetera. So even the word existence can be problematic. But for someone like Caputo, we can talk about heaven as an insistent force, which means there are moments of joy in our lives, which are moments in which the material world seems to have cracks within it. Those cracks uh, are type of transcendence, that, this, that, that other worlds are possible, that other dimensions are possible, that there, there is something beyond anything we can imagine or reason that calls us. And in these little moments where we're surprised by joy, because they just come along at the weirdest of times, um, we get a sense of the type of life we should be leading, the a type of life that is meaningful and humanizing and 
beautiful, a type of life in which we walk the path towards a world that we may never reach. And then for him, when he defines Christianity as actually walking the path, that's very close to, to me to what like someone like Camus is saying, where you orient your life towards walking within the unknowing and walking within basically what Camus calls the absurd, which is a world in which we, we feel like there is something more wondrous and more beautiful that seems to always uh, resist being captured, that doesn't seem quite here. And what we in a sense do is embrace that absurdity of living in a world where we want something. We can't quite put our finger on what it is, but we, you know, we experience it in our lives and it never quite arrives. But, but we somehow, the rebel for Camus is the one who embraces that absurdity and finds life within it and moves always towards this heavenly utopia but always saying it's, it's out of reach. It is still to come. Um, okay, so that's, that's in a nutshell my reading of, of C.S. Lewis and Joy. And of course, he was surprised by Joy in a very literal sense. Um, he doesn't talk about this in the book at all, so I'm not sure if it happened after the book was written. I need to look at the dates. But, um, you know, he fell in love with Joy Grisham and uh, they got married and she died. And, uh, you know, this was one of the defining parts of C.S. Lewis's life. And uh, what's interesting is what Lewis is describing is very similar to falling in love. When you fall in love, you fall in love with someone who is there, who is in front of you. But you also fall in love with their potentiality, with their hidden recesses, with their unconscious, with the, their their openness to the future. So when you love someone, the love is also for the hidden city that that person is, for the hidden depths that that person is. So there's a longing, a longing to get to know them better. Like the person is a universe to explore. And the more you get to know them, the more you realize that universe keeps going and going. And so the longing of love is a pleasurable longing. It's a longing for um, the person that you're with who is still to arrive, who is still, um, still to, to explore and to get to know better. And uh, so I think that's a, a nice metaphor for Lewis's surprised by joy. So in conclusion then, uh, for Lewis, joy is a pleasurable longing. And joy are those moments that we experience in life when our world is opened up to new possibilities and new worlds that we can't quite imagine, but that seem to call us beyond what we presently have. And there is a way of actually living into that and walking that path, um, which he calls Christianity, which he feels happened in his conversion. And in walking along that path, um, he found a genuine way to affirm existence. Uh, but where I want to radicalize Lewis is just get off the bus, the stop before he does, um, and say that actually joy and the cultivating of joy, I think, is the essence of the good life. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Um, I hope you got something. I should actually, just one second, I'll look, see if there's any questions. Um, 
Uh, so Simon says, one thing about the spatial and temporal sense of heaven as place is that it has clear political implications. Um, yes, Simon, absolutely. And I don't know whether you mean that positively or negatively, because um, you could look at it either way. I want to look at it, first of all, negatively and go that often when we have a sense of a utopia that we can clearly imagine in spatial and temporal ways, that can, that can often lead to us thinking that we can kneel down what liberation, democracy, justice, and freedom really is and really looks like. But the idea that, that those, those concepts, the Derridean idea that those concepts are always, in a sense, unimaginable, or there's always an unimaginable dimension to those things, means that um, any political systems we create are always open to new interpretations and new possibilities. So yeah, but definitely there's a political dimension to how we conceptualize uh, utopia um, and heaven. Let's see. Uh, Oh yeah, uh, uh, is it Jan, Jan uh, De Beer? says, I think Jürgen Moltmann articulates this beautifully when he calls hope anticipated joy. Um, I think this shares C.S. Lewis's ideas about joy. That, yeah, that's interesting. Actually, I, I haven't read much Moltmann, but I've read a lot of um, Ernst Bloch, uh, who Moltmann was very influenced by. My, my PhD supervisor was a Bloch uh, expert. So I sometimes think I might sound a bit like uh, Moltmann, uh, occasionally not knowing that I do. But uh, yeah. Um, Let's see. Oh, yes, Tim's quoting C.S. Lewis. He says, shoot for heaven and you get this world, but shoot for this world and you get nothing. Um, uh, that kind of runs a mock of your material. What do you think? Tim, no, I, I love that quote, but I'll be honest with you. Yes, Tim, you're right. I am not agreeing with Lewis in, in the sense of I'm getting off the stop before him. What I love about the quote that you just gave is that's exactly what I want to say is deconstruction and parotheology. What I do is, is about aiming for the impossible. It aims towards the unimaginable, unforeseeable future, which means you orient yourself to worlds that don't yet exist. You orient yourself towards something. And in doing that, you transform the world. In doing that, you're able to enjoy and embrace the world. So that's, what I, that's why I like that quote of C.S. Lewis, one of my favorites. The difference is, well, I want to be more true to Lewis than Lewis. I want to be a literalist. He says, aim for heaven. He doesn't say, get heaven and you will get the world. Isn't that right? Let's see. Um, let me look. Yes, shoot for heaven. So he's, that's my point. My point is like the problem is if he said, get heaven and you get the world. Um, keep with the world and you end up with nothing. Um, it's the aiming. And that's what Derrida is about. Derrida is saying that, you constantly orient yourself to the, the potentiality of the future, to the novelty of the future. And in doing that, you find a richness of life. Um, and that's why I am, and here's the thing, you'll probably know this, like with Lewis, you either get people who love him, who basically what he says is it's like, it's, it's Jesus and Lewis, you know, and then everybody else, right? Or you get people who hate him. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, his apologetics and can't stand it. I kind of want to say that actually I, I enjoy him a lot, but I do want to radicalize him. And I do want to say that my reading of Lewis 
is, is one that he would agree with. What I want to say is that my reading of Lewis is attempting to find the radical potential of Lewis that was lost in his conservatism and his like kind of more crude apologetics. So I want to say, I want to uh, like, I'm always want to say in the same way that Shizek uh, reinterprets GK Chesterton. Um, I wanted, I want to kind of do the same thing with Lewis. Uh, let's see. Oh yes, uh, Tim saying again. Oh yeah, sorry. You uh, said C.S. Lewis is conservative compared to your material, absolutely. But as you said in, in the previous vid, he's an excellent writer. Yeah, that's it. I mean, Tim, honestly, people are saying to me, "Why are you kind of like picking this interest in Lewis?" But it's, uh, one of the main reasons is I actually find it incredible that this guy captured so many of his generation, the imagination and intellect of so much of his generation, and then millions of people subsequent to that, there's something of his spirit that I really admire and I think we can really learn from. And in the retreat, I want to kind of draw that out. How do we become more like Lewis, especially if you're a writer or if you're a speaker? How can you become more like Lewis in, this, in, in his spirit? while, of course, critically disagreeing with a lot of them, which, by the way, Lewis would love. I mean, that's, as I say, both with the Inklings and the Socratic Society, he loved a good debate. He loved a good... He was an Ulster. He was an Ulsterman, just like me, and we love a good fight. Nothing, nothing the Northern Irish liked more than a good fight over a beer in the pub, right? So um, that's, that's what I'm really, really interested in. There was something else I was going to say about that. What was it? Um... Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was also so well read. I mean, when I read Surprised by Joy, I was like, okay, the one thing I can't do, which I've probably been guilty of in the past, is thinking that Lewis's work is shallow or something. Not, not all of it, but some of his theological work is shallow. But, but also realizing that actually, you know, he read so deeply that um, I think that's that's something that is more difficult for me to say. Even when I read some of his essays and think, oh my goodness, I really realize, oh no, he's, he's, read, he's read everything, you know. And he, he, even, he even lectured in philosophy briefly in Oxford. Uh, he said not very well, but um, he did do that. All right, guys, listen, thank you so much for uh, tuning in again. Um, I really appreciate it. I'll, I'll probably won't do one of these until I finish Wake. Uh, next week, but maybe before I go back to LA, I'll, uh, I'll get another one in. Uh, if any of you are coming to the festival, I'll be seeing you in a few days. Thanks and take care. Goodbye.